Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 274 of Selling the Couch. I hope that you are doing well and taking good care of yourself. I'm actually recording this in late March, uh, the last day in March, and the weather is just getting fantastic here. And I'm really looking forward to the spring. And I know that for many of us, we're looking uh, hopefully cautiously optimistic, you know, uh, that we are starting to round the corner on this pandemic and all of those different things. So today's podcast session is a special one because I am talking to the first female identified electrician in the state of Oregon ever, which is so cool. And my guest today is Deb Marinos. And Deb is also a licensed professional counselor intern. And so she's had quite a a varied career path. And I wanted to have Deb on because one, I felt like she had such a wealth of life knowledge and you know, as you'll hear in the interview, she went from, you know, having to apply to be an electrician in the 70s, when, you know, the thought of uh, someone that's female and an electrician is just not even something that was not even on the radar. Her dad ended up having to file a lawsuit and all of these different things. Then she was an EMT and actually owned her own company for a number of years. And then she developed progressive vision loss. And that made a huge shift in in terms of how to think about things and how to think about her business and life and all of those different things. But before we get to today's podcast session, I just wanted to let you know that if you have been listening to this podcast and you're like, man, I want to launch a podcast as well. It's, it's definitely a bit of work, but it is a lot of fun. I mean, getting to have these conversations and with just some truly amazing people while also just having a platform to be able to share knowledge and, and serve others on a bigger scale. It's just been so much fun. And if you're interested in something like that, um, I have a brand new podcasting workshop that I recorded earlier this year with updated information, updated, you know, explainer videos and a bunch of stuff like that. And uh, you can find out more about that and sign up over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. It's free and you can actually pick a date and a time that works for you. Hey friends, we are on sabbatical from the STC podcast. This is my first sabbatical in seven years. 
but we will be back in April with brand new episodes of the STC podcast. In the meantime, there are a lot of things happening still with STC. Uh, among them is a brand new workshop that we put together for you that you can sign up at a date and time that works for you. If you are a successful private practitioner and interested in launching an online course, you can check out that workshop over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course workshop. Again, that's sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course workshop. So we'll get right to today's conversation. Here's my conversation with Deb Marinos from adaptabilityforlife.com. Hey, Deb, welcome to Selling the Couch. And thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You have had quite a life and quite a career. It's been very interesting. I, I have learned a lot along the way. Yeah, I think that's part of like one of the big reasons I'm looking forward to this conversation because I feel like there's just so much life and career wisdom that you can impart. So I really am just grateful that you know we can have this conversation. Great. So I um I I read a New York Times piece uh, that came out in March of 2020 that you know just in the process of researching for our conversation and it said basically that 2.4% of electricians in the US are women. I honestly I mean I knew it was low. I didn't realize it was that low. What was that like for you? You know, it was Interesting, when the Me Too stuff came out, I had quite the reaction to that. I didn't know there was a name for all that. When I started, I got my uh, journeyman's card in 1981. And so it was in the 70s. In fact, while I was in high school, I started working for my dad. So I didn't think anything of it. I was just following him. But he wasn't too impressed with the idea. He, you know, I used to always say that dad had three girls and he would really wanted a boy. And so I did my best. And so to follow him and he was an electrical contractor and electrician his whole life. So for me, it was a great opportunity to get outside, to work hard, to, I just loved the construction world. It was like a big family. And, you know, I was all about getting it done. How many holes could I drill? How many boxes could I nail? How many, you know, at that time we were wiring a lot of houses, but then we moved it. We were in a rural area in Oregon. So we had a lot of you know, dairies and seed elevators. And so my very first job was climbing up and down a straight ladder, delivering parts and material to all the other electricians for six floors up and down a, an elevator. Mm. And so, you know, it was fun, but I learned very quickly that I needed to sew hammer loops onto my pants because there was a bunch of people that had some odd ideas about why I might be out there. And so by carrying a straight claw hammer, on my leg at all times, I could avoid problems by if anybody got within my little bubble, which was about four feet, out came the hammer and suddenly there was a nail that needed to be pounded, you know, so I didn't have to directly threaten anybody, but I, I was considered very hip and unfriendly, but it was an absolute necessity. Yeah, it was survival, it sounds like. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, and yes, there were problems, but we don't talk about those and nothing, well, you know how we discount. So anyway, it wasn't fun. But the hardest part was getting in to the program. They were not allowing women to be in the apprenticeship program. And so unbeknownst to me, dad filed a equal opportunity suit. And anyway, when they 
another, it took a couple of years, but when I went back in for my interview, they said, well, what would happen to your suit, which was the first I knew about it, if you got in? And I said, well, look, all I want to be is an electrician. So why would I have to sue you if I got in? And so suddenly, magically, I got in. That's I learned not... later that dad had to promise to not let me loose. In other words, they wouldn't have to hire me, that he could keep me in his shop. Wow. And I was the first one to get in, in Oregon. Wow. I, um, I mean, there's just, I don't even know what to say. There's like so many thoughts going through my head. First is like, your dad had this sort of persona, right, that he communicated, but like he really wanted you to succeed. I mean, and I can't even imagine the courage it must have taken him, right, to file a suit and to say like, this is what I want my daughter to do, you know? Yeah. And it was pretty impressive because, you know, he used to say, I wouldn't wish, wish it on my worst enemy, but if you want to do it, I'll help you get there. How do you think that, I mean, that's such a beautiful phrase, like, what a like beautiful, like pearl of, you know, like life knowledge, right? How do you think that what dad just said has informed so much of like how you even approach life? Oh, that's a really good question. And I guess I would like to say that troubleshooting and puzzle building was what I loved the most about electrical work. And I think it's what I carried the most through my teaching career, through my counseling career, through anything. But there, I, from my early childhood, had a you know, one of those kind of personalities. If you told me no, I had to figure out how it could be done. Um, if you said I was too little, I had to find a way to get up there. And so this was just one more, I guess, challenge. Challenges have been a big part of my life. And so, yeah, yeah. I tend to become motivated and engaged when somebody says I can't. How do you think you learned that? That was a very painful kind of childhood thing. My mom had some substance and migraines and different things. And so it wasn't much fun. But one of the things I finally learned was that, you know, they kept telling me they loved me. They also said some other things that were not kind. And so I decided that I would make my own choices and that I could figure out things for myself. First, thank you so much for just having the courage to like share that, that right there, because I mean, so many of us in this in this healing and helping profession are like wounded healers, you know? And I used to think even for me, like I used to think like my own trauma was a barrier, but I, I feel like in many ways, it's actually made me like a more empathic person, clinician, business owner, like all of the above kind of thing. Yeah. You have the understanding that, you know, you do what you got to do and when somebody wants to tell you that you shouldn't disassociate or you shouldn't have protective patterns, you have to stop and say, now, wait a minute, it really hurts. So, mm -hmm. and I survived. I made mm -hmm. it. What made you shift careers? My vision. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with something called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a different kind of vision loss. It's not fuzzy. So I see very clearly, even to now, I'm 63 now, and and I can see colors, I can see clearly, but my side vision is missing. But it's so such an invisible thing that you don't see it. I don't, you know, you don't see it coming, you don't know what you're missing. But I, I broke three bones in two years, and nobody could explain why. I just had these accidents. And then through kind of a difficult process, in fact, the first time I went to my eye doctor, she told me I needed to go see a counselor because I was too anxious. My older sister also had something. We didn't know exactly what it was, but some eye disease. And 
So I said, well, I think I might have it because when I make muffins, there's only 10, you know, 11 muffins coming out. And the kids are teasing me that I have an oven mouse and that eats the muffins, you know, and now it's kind of getting really self-conscious about it and making sure all the muffins are getting filled up. But then one day I pulled it out and there were only 10. So I go to the eye doctor and she takes a picture and tells me of my retinas and says, look, they're fine. You know, you're just too anxious. Go see a counselor. So two years later, I took those same pictures to a specialist who said, oh, look, these are really good pictures of your RP. But what it meant was for me is I had to stop driving because nobody could tell me. They said maybe I was still legal to drive at that point. But when I started to think about it, there's a problem with night blindness and dimness. You go under a tree or if there's a shade of a building, you're not seeing for those minutes. Like you go into a tunnel, you're not seeing. You have a very hard time adapting to the vision loss. And so you know, changes in light, whether bright or dim. And so I just recognized that driving was probably not thing. And at the time I was an EMT, emergency medical technician, working at the hospital and I was in a, a driving class and I just hated it. I hated going code three anywhere. I just could feel the tension. And then I said, oh, that must be why I feel all this tension. And so not driving while you're running a company can be quite a challenge, but you know, I hired apprentices, I hired drivers, I did what I needed to. And I continued the company for nine years, but over a period of time, everybody was making so much more money than I was. And my kids were teenagers. I had three children. One was junior in high school. I had one freshman and I had junior higher. And they really could use some parental supervision and, and parenting was important to me. So I said, no, I think it's time for me to sell the shop. Plus both my parents I took care of them in their older years. One was in, dad was in a wheelchair for 10 years and mom, you know, went through her detox program and came out of it pretty good, but they both needed a lot of support, but the family business was important to them, but both of them had passed. And so there was really no reason for me to continue. And so I sold the company and decided, well, let's see, what else am I going to be? Cool. Random. What's code three? Oh, when you turn on the lights and sirens and you get to howl through town. Oh, nice. And whatever speed you feel like. Right. Okay. And then I would see, okay. And then that sort of, I guess, changes in light would, would be like really hard on your eyes and you wouldn't be able to see like that. Well, gradient. you can't, the, the, the thing about driving is we have rules, right? Everybody mm-hmm. stops at stop signs, everybody, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. but you're breaking all the rules. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Any, mm-hmm. And then that's the same thing with me crossing the street today with my vision. I know that I'm going to miss stuff, but I didn't know that in the beginning. I didn't have any more broken bones once I learned what it was I had because I could recognize what my deficits were. And, you know, as you bring that up, that's kind of an interesting piece. You know, don't we do that in counseling a lot is try to figure out what it is we're missing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to make sure I don't miss anything. So the the broken bones were because um well in one case i left my hand on the back of the truck the wind caught the door and i never saw the door coming so the you know the door shut on my finger um the other one was a crawl hole i was looking for it but i didn't see it so i fell in it and one foot got left behind in the other you know and the other foot didn't bottom out so that snapped the ankle on that one and I don't remember what it was, but they were just things that I missed. I didn't, um, you, your vision is, it's kind of when I describe it, if you had binoculars 
strapped on, there's a couple of things you would notice. One is, is that it'd be really hard to walk around and not get nauseous because your little binoculars are bouncing up and down, right? As you go around a little small field. The other thing is, if you want to find something, say you're in a stadium and you look across the way and you know that your friends are over there somewhere, you're going to have a hard time finding them in the crowd with a pair of binoculars. But if they told you that they were in section A and they're in the fifth row and they're wearing their favorite duck or beaver hat, then you would be able to pretty well nail it, right? You could find them. So it's the same way with me. If I know where it's at and I know what it's doing, I'm pretty good at it. Um, If I have it in my hand, I can read it. But can I find it to read it? Mm, You know, and now my vision has gotten so tiny that trying to find a mouse on a computer screen is like impossible. And I have the darn thing at least a half an inch big, but it still takes an enormous amount of time. And so I've learned to always slide it up into the right corner and I look for it in the right corner and then I track it down to whatever I want to click on. And of course, there's better ways to do it. The computer, there's ways to not use a mouse and use your keyboard. And so I use as many of those as I can make work. It's amazing how, you know, just that we as humans, like we adapt to circumstances, right? I wanted to ask you about something that you said earlier. You said, you know, because of the progressive vision loss, you ended up having to stop driving, right? So it made me kind of curious because you're this person who does not believe that like a no is not a no, no, it's I'm going to do whatever I can to figure this out, right? What was that like for you to have, you know, to say, to make that decision or even have someone say like, no, you can't drive? Yeah, I, you know, I made the decision myself and I've thought about that a lot. You know, had I had the right, the doctor that did my original test was incorrect and they looked at the wrong size. They didn't know how to read the test. So they said I was legally drive when I wasn't. And so I went and did some very fancy testing because it was a very unpopular decision. I We lived outside of this city by about two miles. So there was no transportation available. And the kids, you know, they were in sports and they had different things. And so that began this crazy journey of trying to get everybody everywhere and getting rides. My husband said, just because, you know, just because you have decided to not drive doesn't mean I need to fill in the gap. And so, you know, we didn't have food. He tried real hard to make sure that I would go back to driving. But the choice of having to know that I had run somebody over or hurt someone or got my own children hurt in a car accident because I was being so selfish to think that I was the only one that could drive or get us around. I didn't feel was something I wanted to live with. It wasn't something that anybody else had a right to saddle me with. And so I continued to do it. But I will admit that it became an extremely depressing thing. My sense of worth bottomed out and it was not you know, the family had never supported anything like counseling. I'd never met a counselor up until that point in time. And it was extremely difficult, dark, lonely, scary kind of place. And then part of being female in the trades, you have to remember, emotions were not accepted. If you cried, all bets were down. Everybody was busy deciding whether or not I belonged out there. I spent all of my time working harder and having to be better than anybody else because I was constantly being either challenged that, you know, you really don't belong out here or, oh, it's just great that you're out here, but isn't it wonderful? You had to be a superstar. And that did not include emotions. And so I had learned both in childhood and in, you know, I didn't think it was that strange really in the trade to not have feelings. So I was in a world of hurt 
mm-hmm. when that transition came because I didn't know how to express it. I didn't have anybody safe to talk to. I just keep thinking like as you're sharing, I mean, like what an unbelievable weight, you know, to carry. I mean, the closest thing that I ever have of that experience is, you know, just like our family immigrating from India to here and, you know, me having to be the oldest one and figuring out like college and, you know, getting, you know, going, getting through elementary, middle, high school, and then college and grad school. But I feel like what you went through like pales in comparison. I mean, just what a weight, you know, you're not just carrying the weight of you doing a good job, but, you know, just for, you're also simultaneously paving a path for women going forward. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't discount what you went through because that constant, I feel it for you, that constant sense of not fitting in, of not belonging, of being different, of never having somebody else do it. You don't have a pattern to follow. You don't have, you don't even know if it can be done or if it should be done. And yet you you hope and you go forward and you kind of have that experimental hey, let's see what happens here. And I guess the worst that'll happen is I'll fail and I'll have to do something different. And so, you know, kudos for both of us for getting through it and keep going. And it was very sweet, really. I got invited by the apprenticeship committee to help out. There were two women that followed me immediately after and they were both in trouble. And so they said, could you kind of like go and find out, you know, what's really happening here? We don't want to get into something you know, but these people are saying these bad things about them. And of course, in both cases, it was not the women's fault. And it was almost always the, the spouses that would start something. They would be jealous that there was a female out on the job site. And in the one case, the guy was cheating on her, but it wasn't with the apprentice. And so it was just really gratifying to be able to help these women get through the program and be fairly treated and, you know, give them some advice about what they could and couldn't do be able to get through it yeah it's so such a cool like a neat like full circle moment there you know yeah um you said something earlier you said you know you went through this season of depression where you you know had to go into counseling and then also had to really almost like relearn so much of what you had understood with regard to expressing emotions and all of those things how did the counseling experience inform your own decision to to pursue your LPC? I wish I could say that it was 100% wonderful, but I wasn't ready yet to really, I mean, I, and it was a different, it was a very, I guess we would call it when I went to college, it was solution focused or whatever. And so it, it didn't really address, it was more around what relationships were, you know, how to make things work better. It's very practical. And so that first bout of counseling, wasn't extremely informative, I guess you might say, for wanting to be a counselor. And what happened for me was that I went into teaching. I started teaching apprenticeship. I kept, you know, as soon as I knew that this this career was going to have to go, I started looking for things. And so I said, well, you know, maybe I could teach. So I got a job at the college and did apprenticeship teaching and some other stuff. And then went back to school, got a degree in business management, organizational leadership. It's supposed to be universal for something, but I learned about universality is not necessarily a good thing. Didn't give me a job. And I also got a degree in professional technical teaching. So it 
what I was doing is a lot of advocacy work. I've always done a lot of community service work along with, I've always been interested in a bunch of different things. I had to give up my EMT thing too, when the vision thing came out. And so I was doing advocacy work for apprenticeship. I worked on starting a youth apprenticeship for the high school because kids had a hard time getting in. And I recognized what it was like to not be able to get in an apprenticeship program. So I took that on. And in the process of doing it, I was offered a contract to teach low voltage electricians how to use the code book. And so I did that for three years and that launched my teaching career. But I continued to advocate and started advocating for blindness issues and was at a conference and somebody walked up to me and said, well, you know, we've got this grant program that you can get a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. Are you interested in that? And I said, well, I don't know. What is it? I mean, I had met a rehab counselor, but I didn't know what it was to be a counselor. So in my usual way of checking things out with people, I had gone around and asked a bunch of, what do you think about, you know, and rehab counselors, I think I could do that. And they go, well, you're a really good troubleshooter. And I said, yeah, well, I don't know about that counseling feeling thing. And they still learn that. So not exactly what I did is I went and got a master's degree. I did not know a whole lot about counseling as far as feelings. It's hard to believe, but I a lot about people who had suddenly lost their due to disability of all kinds and turn their trans skills into okay dissection between interests, abilities, and the market. There were no feelings in that. It was like, hey, what do you like to do? What are you at? What does the market say need? And let's see, oh, the intersection right here. All right, let's find these jobs. Let's see what it takes. What skills do you need so that you can be the best and get in the door? And so, but a part of the requirements in my internship was that I have a mental health counselor. I was not happy with this decision. <clears throat> and anyway, so I was to find a very good psychologist who was smart enough to realize that I was probably the most avoidant attack type personality me. And so he just, you know, if I wanted to show up once a month, that was fine. You know, and eventually the conversation turned towards the thing and I began my healing process. But yeah. And so, Etsy, that was uh, 2008. And I have certainly come a long ways since then. That's neat. I wanted to wrap up with kind of two, I guess, I guess a two-parter. Uh, the first thing is, um, what is, in your words, what is progressive vision loss? Well, as I said, it, it, it's becoming less and less aware of what's around me. Things just become so much harder. You know, things like you drop something on the floor and you can't find it. You got to go get a broom to get it. But it's also been a case of learning a whole bunch of ways to get things done. So, you know, tremendous amount of, of there's a misconception in the world that if you are blind, you can't do anything. So the more functional and the more training and the more adaptive you get, the less likely it is that anybody can believe you can't see. And that just brings up a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, that is it is really interesting how the world absolutely sees it. I mean, speaking of that, because I think part of, you know, why I wanted to have this conversation is I know that, you know, the folks, colleagues that are listening to these conversations, they're probably thinking about some of this for their own business. So what would you say are like two things that colleagues should consider when creating a business or, you know, creating an affirming business and environment for someone that does have progressive vision loss? So I think the questions that they asked are super important. So for example, what can you see is a not affirming question. The better question would be, is I want you to know that I want to give you information that is useful. What do you need 
what do I need to know to be able to give you information you can either access or get? The other piece of it is to believe that people can be successful, that even though that for them, if they covered their eyes up, they wouldn't be able to do anything and it would be too horrible and it would do everything. The truth is, is that with the training that's available for free in every state, any blind person, anybody with progressive vision loss can have whatever they want. The other side of it, which is something I'm dealing with now, is when do you get to grieve it? You still can see, but when do you get to grieve those losses? And they come in little batches, and of course we do, but there's a tendency for everyone to just say, well, you know, you can still see some that's coming somewhere down the road. But the truth is, is that at some point in that person's journey, there would be a bump, and, and in fact, you may have to grieve it many times. And so having the understanding is really super yeah, really, really well said. Uh, Deb, I'm just grateful for you. I'm, I'm grateful just for our time together. Where can we learn more about you and some of the awesome things that you're doing in the world? Well, thank you, Melvin. And it's been a joy. I have a website and it's adaptabilityforlife.com, all one word. And at the bottom, I have two freebies. So one is called Making Interactions Easier. So all the other things that are clinician can grab. It's a free guide. And then there's one thing called a signature template, which is an easy way for someone to be aware that you're aware. It's just a little piece of cardboard and it has a hole in it. You want someone to sign, you just plop your paper down and they can feel where they're supposed to sign. And then they're like, oh gosh, you you have a clue. So yeah, my website, I do have a YouTube channel with just a little bit of um, under Deb Marino's. I have a couple little videos there that would also be useful. I also teach cultural competence classes, and you'll find those on my website as well. Perfect. And uh, I'll definitely link to that for you guys. Uh, So you don't, you can always um, check that out. Deb, thank you again for this time. And I'm just grateful for it. Thank you. Hey there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Deb. And uh, I hope that especially it's given you just a different perspective on things both for life and for your business. I was reflecting on this conversation as I tend to do with most of these podcast episodes. And I think one of the most important things that I took away from this conversation is just kind of reinforced for me is how resilient we all are. You know, I know that we all have our own stories of survival and the the adversities that we have had to come through. And just to, you know, get to do this, right, to get to build these businesses. And it's just, it's an amazing thing, you know, and I just found myself more than anything, just being in gratitude for that, you know, how, you know, I think for me, for a long time, I felt like the things that I had dealt with, you know, as both a child and an adult, they were actually impediments. And what I really have come to realize, or I'm slowly, very, very slowly realizing, is that those were really hard things, but they also taught me a lot and gave me a a crazy sense of resiliency and, and courage and boldness. And I know that many, if not all of us, have, have that as well. 
Before we wrap up, uh, again, just wanted to encourage you to sign up for the free podcasting workshop that I put together. I called it Using Podcasting to Grow Your Business. I'm always playing with the title. I always try to find a title that's like, just succinctly explains uh, what it is. And the podcasts are that a workshop is specifically geared toward those of us in the helping and healing professions. So if you feel like you have a big message to share and Especially if you feel like, you know, I really want to create a platform where I can expand my professional network and build a platform where I have folks that tune in week after week, where I, you know, like build, you know, just a loyal group of what I call super fans, you know, folks that that truly believe in what you're doing, then I encourage you to check out the podcasting workshop. Podcasting is blowing up, in fact. Last year, Edison Research said that just here in the U.S., there are 100 million people listening to podcasts on a regular basis, which is pretty wild that, you know, almost a third of the U.S. population is now listening. I mean, this is the future of radio, and there's just so many opportunities. Um, It's still early in the space, and I think there's some neat opportunities to jump in. You can learn more about the workshop. Again, it's completely free over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. Hey friends, we are on sabbatical from the STC podcast. This is my first sabbatical in seven years, but we will be back in April with brand new episodes of the STC podcast. In the meantime, there are a lot of things happening still with STC. Uh, among them is a brand new workshop that we put together for you that you can sign up at a date and time that works for you. If you are a successful private practitioner and interested in launching an online course, you can check out that workshop over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course workshop. Again, that's sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course workshop. Have a great rest of your day and I will see you in the next session. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.